This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. This has not been an easy time. 14 months now. 14 months for businesses everywhere to try and deal with, at times, 5% of normal revenues. Five. And that was on good days. And things continue to move along when we know that even before the holidays, some businesses were saying, look, I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to make it through whatever, you know, we'll, we'll deal with whatever comes at us in the next little while. And then we talked a lot this week about sick days and the idea that the Ontario government has said, we don't want to put that on the backs of small and medium-sized businesses. We don't want to do that. That's why we're going in different directions. Well, we haven't really taken stock of how things are going for businesses in a little while, but we're able to do that. The Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business joins us, Julie Kwasinski. Julie, thanks so much for being here. How's Friday going? Sorry about that. You just cut out. Oh, I was just asking how Friday was going. Oh, I I missed that. It's not going too badly. Thank you for asking. Um, How's your Friday going, Mike? You know what? I I can't complain either. I'm I'm a little concerned right now at, at how you're going to describe how things are going for businesses in the province of Ontario because there's little to make anybody think things are all of a sudden better, but where do things sit from who you're able to speak with? Well, needless to say, things continue to be very rough. Uh, most of our businesses, especially in retail, like gyms, hair salons, restaurants, hospitality, tourism sector, just to name a few, are struggling to survive. They're at, on average, 25% normal revenues. Only 43% of them are fully open. We're still projecting around... 75,000 small businesses will close solely due to COVID-19, and that represents a whopping 873,000 potential private sector job losses. So there's a lot to digest there. And, I mean, they continue to be closed. Some of them have been closed for over 300 days. Some of them have been closed since the beginning of the pandemic, like amusement parks, for example, um, just as one example. So it's the struggle continues. That's why we were actually relieved that the government listened to us, Mike, when we asked on the paid sick days that any program not be permanent and it not be paid by small employers who have struggled enough financially due to COVID-19. And, I mean, the other thing that goes without saying, if any business out there is listening that applied for the Ontario Small Business Support Grant, we've just been getting tsunami, Mike, with phone calls. This program that offered certain businesses up to $20,000 and then a second round, another potential $20,000, started out as a really well-meaning program and it's just turned into a disaster. There's nowhere else nowhere else to put it or no other way to say it. What's happening is we keep getting calls about people who applied back at the end of January, still haven't heard, no answer. They email government, call government, no answer. So then they reach out to us, which then makes our 
hotline or our phone lines go off the hooks. And then we're essentially placed in that very unfair position of having defend, to defend this program and kind of take the heat from our members when we're not the ones that actually write the checks or make the decision on whether or not you get money. And then the other thing, too, uh, the government said, hey, if you got money in the first round of funding, we'll automatically double your funding. But then we find out that some people, instead of getting the second round, they're getting an audit notice. And we're not against audits. Obviously, any time you get money from a government program, there could be an audit. But the timing is really insensitive. It's almost like they're making the second round of funding contingent on whether or not you survive the audit. And we're saying, like, put these audits off. We know you have to do them. Do them later. Not now. Now is not the time. So, I mean, to add on to this, to add on to this, I have to be honest with you, Mike. I read this bill, 284. This is the new paid sick days bill. Read it yesterday. Some red, red flags are coming off. Now, the first and foremost one is that if you're an employee, you can already take these three paid sick days. Okay, that's fine. We get that. But what about the employer? There's no system set up yet through the WSIB or a contracted party for the business to get their money back. So how long is the business going to have to wait? And let's say people start taking these days next week. How is the business going to get the money back? And with the experience that I mentioned with the small business grant program, what confidence would a business owner have that they're going to get the money back for the paid sick days within a reasonable amount of time? I have to tell you, uh, I'm losing sleep over this. Until this system is set up for businesses to get reimbursed and i think this is being lost in the story and i think that, that it is a reimbursement that it, yeah, like you said the yeah. the request had gone out not to put this onto small and medium-sized businesses and that was something that the minister of labor made very very clear yeah. that's not what they wanted to do he was on this show he was on the bill kelly show and and reiterated that a couple of times but this is still something that businesses have to pay first and then get yeah. the money back afterward? It's not the employee. I mean, I've heard doctors, and I'm not going to name them because I'm not here on the shaming doctor show, but doctors have been out there kind of saying that the employee has to do the reimbursement. The employee doesn't have to do anything. Uh, the employer can ask them for, quote-unquote, reasonable evidence within a reasonable time frame but no sick notes. So the employee doesn't really have to do anything other than within a reasonable amount of time tell the employer that they need to take this time off and it qualifies for any number of the reasons under the bill. But, I mean, I read the bill um, there, and I haven't heard anybody in government or the WSIB, and listen, I'm not putting this on the WSIB. I'm sure they didn't ask to have this. But nobody's reached out saying, hey, the portal's up. Businesses can start getting reimbursed. Nothing. And I'm really concerned because there's no legislative time frame within which the WSIB has to reimburse businesses. So where's the accountability? I've been out there, and I'm going to keep doing it three to five days. I want our small business members to get this money back in three to five days. And where is this portal or this system? Where is it for, for businesses to get the money back? 
and they have 120 days to get the money back. So when does the the clock start? Yeah, but I mean, but there's no there's nowhere for them to go. Is that what you're saying? No. That this that no. we're putting carts before horses again? No. So I'm an employee right now. I can start taking these days. I read the bill. It had to have royal assent. It got royal assent. I'm an employee. I can take these days. But where do I go? I don't know. I'm the business owner. Where do I go? All I know, and guess what? The WSIB can contract it to another party. It's in the bill. They can ask somebody else to set up this portal or this system. Meanwhile, business owners are going to have to play the wild goose chase and figure out where this is coming from. And, I mean, it's my job, Mike. I'm here... And thank you for having me to stick up for 38,000 small business owners who are struggling to survive. And if I don't start putting this issue, be proactive, if I don't put it on the radar now as I'm doing with you, I'm not doing my job on behalf of our members. So I am out there and I'm hoping anyone who listens, I've already reached out to the WSIB today, to the chair directly, to say that I want to talk about this. And recognizing that, you know, that I'm sure that this, I don't want to blame her for this, because I am, I mean, I don't know the answer for sure, but I am sure that the chair, Elizabeth Whitmer, did not go knocking on the government's door and suggesting that, that they do this. But I have to tell you, the experience with the small business portal, why would I have confidence that businesses are going to get their money back in a timely manner? I'm really worried. And I've got to tell you, I'm beat, Mike. All I do every day now for, you know, seven hours a day is deal with issues from a government small business grant that I have nothing to do with or CFIB has nothing to do with. And it, it's just, it's got to stop. This has got to end. And now they're going to put in place a tourism grant and this portal through WSIB or the contractor. Oh, I, I don't know what to say. I just well, uh, Julie, can we check in in, in maybe a, a week or two and see if anything is more clear? Because right now it's clear as mud. I think I, I hope I made the points clear. And again, I just oh, you did. You were clear. Good. The entire system sounds anything but. Yeah, we got to stick up for our small business members. I have to. They need this money. Every penny counts. The bills are piling up. They've been closed. Yeah, a lot of them have been closed. They can't earn revenue, but guess what, Mike? Bills keep piling up. That doesn't stop. And rent for small business and medium-sized business, those are numbers that people really don't appreciate just how big they are and how quickly that money continues to pile up. Julie, keep safe. Thank you for the update. Let's talk in a week or two. My pleasure, Mike. Take care. That's Julie Kwasinski, Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And this is the stuff that you don't want to hear. This is the stuff where, yes, you put it in place. Now we have to go and make it work. So it's one thing to say, here it is. Here's the idea. We're, we're all behind this. This is good. But then you've got to make it work. Let's talk about a different activity, one that may not feel as pandemically friendly as golfing the olympics the olympics were postponed a year a year ago they were supposed to happen in tokyo japan in 2020 well 2020 at this time was not really the the right landscape for any kind of international gathering of many people taking part in many different events so it was bumped to 2021 
Well, this past week, we saw information about a surge in COVID-19 cases in Tokyo, and the quick little fine print was, but the Olympics are still on. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Derek Silva. He is the co-host of the End of Sport podcast. He's a sociologist, criminologist, and deals with things like sports, inequality, and racism. Derek Silva, Dr. Silva, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. It's nice to be back. It's great to have you. Let's uh, explore this a little bit. Where do you think we sit in terms of Olympic Games? Because a year ago, there was so much that was way bigger. Right now, you can still argue there is so much that is way bigger than an international gathering to play different sports. But this is still something that there's pressure from a lot of different areas to do. What do you see in front of you? Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a complex question, right? Because the Olympics are this massive, massive event where money is spent for basically a decade, if not more, in order to put on a successful game. So we're not talking millions of dollars. We're talking in the billions of dollars for almost two decades. That's the money's already spent. So when you think of it in terms of of economic terms, it it's really challenging for the organizers to postpone such a large event. And we saw it postponed last year. Um, and I think rightfully so, we're seeing calls to potentially postpone, if not cancel, uh, the Olympics again because of the, the third wave, let's call it, just because of the sheer um, outbreak of, that we're experiencing across the globe and the relatively slow um, uh, vaccination rollout. Um, which is affecting Japan. So what I'm seeing is this sort of scramble to decide whether or not these these games can actually happen and attempts to keep them and make sure they go on because, you know, the money's already spent and it's really difficult to 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 cancel something when you've put that investment in. Yeah, really interesting that you bring it about that way. The money is already spent and the timeline for 20 21 is it is it not still toward the end of july that they want to get these things going yeah it's the end of july and let's not forget the the the, one of the underlying currents here are the the fact that this was supposed to be japan's like event that shows the world that they've they've moved on past fukushima the 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 horrible sort of um nuclear event um uh, that happened this was their kind of announcing to the world that they were back and and okay and this puts a wrench in that sort of geopolitical game as well. So, like, the Olympics are not just this sporting event. It's this huge political thing as well that we that we kind of have to talk about um, in addition. We're talking with Dr. Derek Silva from King's University College, and we are looking at the Olympic Games. Now, we've seen some countries, I think Australia came out and said they will prioritize athletes. How much of a political football could that be if we do draw closer and you've still got a lot of countries? Because, let's face it, we like to complain about our vaccination rollout. There are a lot of countries who are well behind Canada, and all of a sudden you start seeing, okay, well, if you're going to have athletes come, they better be vaccinated. In order for them to be vaccinated, they're going to step in line. Yeah. This is, this is a really key question. And, and David Schumacher, the CEO and Secretary General of the uh, Canadian Olympic Committee, has, has come out several times and said that Canadians will not attempt to 
jump in line, if you will. But the important point here that you raise is the relatively slow vaccination rollout across the world. And in Japan particularly, we complain in Canada, we're, we're really lucky. We've had 30, over 30% of our population has now received at least one dose. In Japan, they're less than 2%. 1.8% of Japan's population has received their first dose. When Canada was at that same place, that was in late January. So think about that. Like, how if we're going to have these events in late July, the, the, Japan is nowhere near ready in terms of their vaccination rollout. So what the organizers are doing are trying to tell countries to prioritize the athletes so that the athletes don't get infected. That's their goal. But what they're missing there is the athletes are going to be in this bubble. They're likely going to be protected. There's money to protect them. There's infrastructure to protect them. But what about the people who live and work in the areas in Japan where these games will take place? Those are the people who are really vulnerable. And the Olympic organizers are completely ignoring those people when they come out with these 60-page manifestos for how they're going to protect athletes. Wow. And uh, you you raise such a great point about, you know, the people around the games, because if you're having someone over to your house, uh, let's put it in small terms, if you have guests over to your house in non-pandemic times and they're going to stay the weekend or whatever, you're going to be looking after their welfare. You're going to be providing them with meals, providing them with uh, a place to shower, providing them with a place to sleep. That's just part of having guests. So you're going kind of above and beyond what you regularly do. Normally, you're just making meals for yourself or your family, and you're just looking after all those things. Now you've got extra people coming in. Is there still a concern that it would be up to Japan to look after everybody and and kind of split an already taxed system to say, yeah, we, we've got to be testing athletes, we've got to be looking after athletes, but we also have to look after everybody here in Japan. I think that's what most of this this narrative is missing. That yes, these athletes are likely going to be safe. And there will be very few cases amongst these athletes, and it will be a great story if the Olympics do go on. It will be a great story. But then the Olympics are going to leave. Then they're going to, everyone's going to go home. And where will Japan be after that? We saw the NCAA tournament. There were very few, the March Madness tournament that just wrapped up, very few athletes were infected. But what happened when they left? Fans were infected. The, the local bar in Indianapolis that, People attended after games. There was an outbreak there, and one person eventually died. This is the type of thing that we are ignoring in sports media and people who are looking at this, ignoring the fact that the people who are going to be harmed most aren't the ones who you know, are the athletes or the organizers. They're maybe the local community, the service workers who are working there, the people who are helping them in hotels or the Olympic Village or who need to clean up in the arenas or the fans who do, who can attend these places. And those people don't have the resources to be able to get sick. Those people don't have the ability to take time off work uh, or uh, don't maybe more vulnerable based on a variety of reasons. They're not elite athletes and they might actually be harmed more. And I think we should change the discourse. So we're talking about that 
And then we can question whether or not these Olympics can and should go on, I think. We've looked at kind of the humanitarian side of things. We've looked at the financial side of things. We're talking with Dr. Derek Silva, Associate Professor of Criminology in the Department of Sociology at King's University College. Dr. Silva, let's kind of end it on this. Is there any one area, any one vein of decision that is going to call the shot on this? Is Is it the financial side of it? Is it the humanitarian side of this? Do you think one is louder than another? That is a wonderful question, and I think, I suspect... They will go on. The, the Olympics will go on and it will be an economic decision. Just we've seen across this planet that people and governments and authorities have put the economy in front of well-being. Um, for some, it's worked. For others, it has been very detrimental. And I think this will be one of the cases where the Olympics will go on because of economic reasons. And we will in 20 years be like, what were we doing? That should have never happened. Uh, you know what? You're right about a lot of things. So in 20 years, we'll check back. And uh, I don't think it'll surprise any of us if you're exactly right about that. Dr. Silva, thank you so much for your perspective on this. Thank you so much for having me. That's Dr. Derek Silva, Associate Professor of Criminology in the Department of Sociology at King's University College. Yeah, that's that's the decision that they have. The IOC, let's face it. This is this is not the gleaming standard of how to do things. Multiple sclerosis. Do you know what it is if you do not have someone in your life who has multiple sclerosis or someone that you know? Do you take the time to understand what is going on the challenges that can exist well tomorrow kicks off multiple sclerosis awareness month and we have talked with andrea dunn a lot over the last little while for so many of the things that she has done she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis about 11 years ago and takes part in the ms bike ride and the ms walk and has been very creative over the last year in what has taken place to make sure that a lot of the fundraising efforts continue on simply because there's a shot at a cure out there for multiple sclerosis that would change an awful lot of lives and there's a lot of science going at it and we have an opportunity right now to talk with andrea dunn about ms awareness month andrea how are you doing well i am i'm happy to say i'm vaccinated i got my vaccine a couple of weeks ago so i'm feeling good about that uh, they allowed MS patients to have, um, to, or to be eligible, I guess, if you will, to get vaccinated. So I had mine. Um, other than that, I'm okay. I'm I'm home all the time. <laughs> I think a lot of us know walls. how that feels. Yeah, the the walls yeah. uh, they they get to look the same after a while. Amazing what it's like to be able to go outside the walls and then come back. Different walls and lives. That that's a big deal. Yeah. It certainly is. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the fact that tomorrow begins MS Awareness Month, and we've got the National MS Walk coming up. What do we know about the MS Walk for 2021? Yeah, well, we know, unfortunately, again, it's virtual. Obviously, we cannot have a large gathering of people here in the month of May, which is disappointing because I always love the MS Walk. You know, for me, I'm, 
I'm in my 11th year of diagnosis now. So whenever I would go to the walk, I would see people that I see just every year, give each other a pat on the back, say, hey, still going strong, still hanging in there, still still trying to beat this and doing the best we can. And it's always nice to see those people. But, you know, we'll, we'll just do it virtually. We'll just see them on the computer. That's about the best we can do. And I think for new people, it's still... If you're newly diagnosed, it's still important to have something to feel that there is support. And if you tune in and watch the the walk online, it's nice to feel that community support Canada wide, especially for people who are newly diagnosed. You don't want to feel like you're alone in this. So that's why it's still important that the MS Society is doing something. I'm excited about that. They just asked me to host the national walk. So I'm very honored. Hey, congratulations. And at the same time, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that that isolated feel because the diagnosis for multiple sclerosis it's not like you can look and say all right yes uh, you know your your three fingers have turned uh, orange and so that's what this means it's it's more saying well you don't have this and you don't have this and we know you don't have this so here you go when you finally get the diagnosis take us through some of those feelings that do come up. It's, I think, the first thing, it's relief. You're like, oh, finally I know what it is. You know, for me, I used to walk my dogs around the block and my legs would vibrate. And I'd get home and I'd think, why is that happening? I know I'm not walking that fast, but I'd get home and I would feel this tingling. And I couldn't explain that. And then I would, you know, I, I would bend my neck and I would feel like, um, I don't even know how to describe that, like a static down my spine almost. It was never painful by any means but I knew that something wasn't right there and I could never explain that either and you know those two things sent me to the doctor and it's a long process you go for an MRI and they're like well think inclusive you'll have to go for another scan which here in London they were a year apart and I ended up having more symptoms my whole left side went numb like this is 11 years ago now when I first got diagnosed right so yeah it's a long process to find out what's going on and then when you find out it's MS, it's like, okay, yes, I know what it is. And then it sinks in what it is. You know, the doctor told me to come back with my questions in a couple of weeks. And boy, did we ever have a load of questions for him. Like, what, what does it even mean? I have MS. What does that mean? I don't even really understand it. What's going to happen to my body? I'm only uh, 30 years old. So it was a, it was overwhelming scary like all of those things come come into your mind like you really just i've had to live with that for a very long time now i'm just really not knowing what the future holds for me andrea dunn joining us from fm96 as we talk about the beginning of multiple sclerosis awareness month tomorrow it will run throughout the month of may and as andrea says there will be the national ms walk one of the things that mm-hmm. you talk about is is the community and, and being able to hear each other's stories and and meet people who are experiencing some of the same feelings that you're experiencing over this past year you've done a podcast called this is ms and you've been able to tell so many different stories what has it been like doing that and and hearing from different people who may have different yet similar experiences to what you've been going through yeah it was amazing putting that podcast together with the ms society we have 12 incredible episodes they are on apple podcasts they're on spotify free to download free to listen 
take a listen to some of the incredible stories people are telling. There's a whole variety of different stories, not just people who have MS, but caregivers. You know, there's a young woman we talked to who has MS. Her mother also has MS. Uh, they had quite the story to tell. I think it was just uh, something that we could do for people in a year where MS patients are very isolated. You had to stay home, could not socialize with friends, couldn't go to groups. Now, there's a lot of people that who have MS, they go to groups, whether that's you know once a month or biweekly, whatever the case is. And with the pandemic, that kind of thing is shut down. That type of support was not there. I mean, some of the groups, they probably maybe tried to do them over the phone or Zoom or whatnot, but that's not the same as sitting in a room with a group of people helping you talk about your symptoms and and making you feel like you're not alone. So the podcast was good for that. People could, you know, wherever they were, uh, you know, even if you were an MS patient in a long-term care home, I heard from a few people that said, that was so nice to have a podcast to listen to to help me get through this and, and remind me I'm not alone, that I'm strong, I can do this. Well, it's called This Is MS. If you have not checked it out, if you have a connection to multiple sclerosis in your life on the Curious Cast Network, on Apple Podcasts, you find it wherever you get your shows. Andrea, thank you so much. It's it's so great that you are so open about everything and and sharing what you do and and how you're feeling and and all of those sorts of things. So thank you for doing that. And uh, keep safe. And we'll be back walking in person in in one year. I, I just know it this time for real yeah i'm i'm okay with not doing the bike ride from grand bend to london this year though i don't miss that necessarily but i do like the walk (laughs) Uh, well we'll get out soon enough thanks again for this and have a good rest of the day you bet Stubbs. thanks so much that's our good friend of london live andrea dunn from fm 96 you've been listening to the london live podcast Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.